During the Welsh Revival of 1904, the Lord swept across that country in a mighty way. Souls were changed. Lives were transformed. People got saved. Bars closed down. People confessed their sins. The churches were packed. A great spiritual awakening transformed the entire country of Wales. And during that time, there were two children who were overheard explaining to each other their notions of what was occurring. As a matter of fact, one of the kids said to his buddy, he said, Do you know what happened in our town? The other child replied, No. All I know is that now Sunday comes every day. The first kid said, Don't you know, though, what happened? He said, No, I don't. And finally the boy explained, Hey, Jesus has come to live in our town. Guys, that's a wonderful explanation of a spiritual revival. A personal revival takes place when Jesus comes and makes His presence aware and vibrant and real to us. Revival in a church occurs when the presence of Jesus is evident in our midst. Revival comes whenever we sense the presence of Jesus in a new and in a powerful way. And here in Genesis chapter 35, Jacob experiences a revival. And boy, did he need one. Understand, Jacob's life was far from an exemplary walk of faith. God worked with a vacillating Jacob. This guy was up and down, hot and cold, on again, off again. You remember his story. After swindling his brother out of his birthright, Jacob fled to Haran to find a wife and to escape from Esau. On the way, though, he had a dream. He saw a ladder extending to heaven. Jacob encountered God. And he received the promise that God had made to his father Isaac and to his grandfather Abraham. Jacob even named that place Bethel, which means house of God. He got off to a good start. But the next 20 years proved to be an exercise in futility. For those 20 years, all he did was build a harem and grow his herds. He married two women, Leah and Rachel. And he got a bonus, two concubines. And with these four women, Jacob sired 12 sons and a daughter. Finally, though, he feels the call of God and he returns to the land. He comes to a place, a little tributary near the Jordan River, just above the Sea of Galilee. And there he wrestles all night with a person that he thinks is Esau. Finally, though, he realizes that this is a messenger of God. In fact, this was none other than God himself, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. And upon realizing that he has been wrestling with God, he grabbed a hold of him and he wouldn't let him go until he was blessed. The next day, Jacob is reunited with Esau. But rather than enter the promised land, again he falters. Jacob squats on the east bank of the Jordan. It was a lack of faith, no doubt. Jacob spends some time there in a place called Succoth until finally he enters the promised land. But again he falls short. Again, Jacob settles in a questionable location. He pitches his tent near the Canaanite stronghold of Shechem, a very pagan, worldly city. And at Shechem, Jacob's life and his family fall apart. You remember the story. His daughter Dinah begins to hang out with the locals, and she gets raped by the prince of Shechem. 
Jacob does nothing about it. And so his sons take matters into their own hands and they avenge their sister by slaughtering the men of Shechem. Imagine Jacob's situation. He is aching for his daughter. He is ashamed of the impulsive and violent actions of his sons. His reputation among the surrounding communities has been ruined. He fears these nations are out to get him. And at the end of chapter 34, Jacob and his family are spiritually adrift. Jacob is in need of revival. And that's when God, in his mercy, comes to the rescue. Chapter 35 begins. Then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from the face of Esau, your brother. God brings Jacob back to where he was first encountered, where he first encountered God. You know, the sinful city of Shechem had gotten Jacob's eyes off the Lord. And the result was confusion and carnage for he and his family. It's time for a new encounter with God. And so Jacob is ordered to make an altar. God is about to re-altar Jacob. Jacob needs to leave the world behind and seek fellowship with the Lord. Guys, when will we learn that this is also the cure for our ailments? This is the solution for our problems. If the world has you confused tonight, if it's beating you down, you need to return to the house of God. You need to come back to Bethel. You need to seek fellowship with your Father, with your Savior, Jesus Christ. Rededicate your life to Him and let the Lord re-alter your perspective back at Bethel. But notice there's some preparation that needs to occur before he can journey back and build this altar to God. Verse 2 tells us, And Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. And I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way in which I have gone. Before they go up to meet the Lord, they need to do three things. They need to put away their idols. They need to purify themselves. And they need to change their garments. And it's interesting. These same three requisites are required for anyone who wants to meet God. First, we need to put away our idols. God's salvation is free. But you can't come to Jesus carrying with you a bag full of other gods. you got to put your idols aside. There's a great saying, I believe it. Jesus won't save who he can't govern. Salvation begins when we submit our lives to God. Whatever it is that you love more than God, put it away. The second thing, they need to purify themselves and so do we. We need to wash again in the blood of Jesus. Tonight, perhaps, you need to ask the Lord for a fresh cleansing. And then he says, change your garments. And that's what we need to do too. Adopt a new perspective. Learn to see yourself as a child of God. We're told to put on Christ. Change your garment. Put on Jesus Christ. Stop seeing, seeing yourself as that old person and see yourself as a child of God. Shed those worldly attitudes and walk by faith. And that's what Jacob's family does. They put away their idols. They purify themselves. They change their garments. And they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. 
And notice what Jake does with all of their worldliness and all of their sin and all of their idolatry. He buries it under the tree. And guys, this is where we need to discard the baggage of our life. We need to take it to the tree. We need to go to the cross. We need to take it to the tree of Calvary. For at the cross of Jesus Christ, all our sins are buried so deep they can never be dug up again. And they journeyed, and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them. And they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. God protected them. And so, God, so Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel. Luz was its former name. Which is in the land of Canaan. He and all the people who were with him. And he built an altar there and called the place El Bethel, which literally means God of the house of God, because there God appeared to him when he fled from the face of his brother. Now, I like Jacob's perception here. You know, Jacob could have gotten sentimental about the location of his meeting with God. You know, this happens to many believers. Christmas Eve, I turned on the television and I watched the Christmas services from St. Peter's Basilica in Rome. And how so many people had gathered there, you know, to be with the Pope, to be in that supposed sacred place. They felt closer to God by being there in a holy city, so to speak. That could have happened to Jacob. It happens to many people. You know, they get attached to a specific church or to a specific church building They act as if God has these spiritual hot spots. These Wi-Fi zones that are set up. And if you're in them, your your prayer life instantly connects with God. You know, it would have been so easy for Jacob to have had this attitude toward Bethel. Bethel. It's where he met God in the beginning. It's where he meets God now. But after this second encounter, I like what Jacob does. He renames the place, not Bethel. But El Bethel, or the God of the house of God. And Jacob is making a a statement by that name. In other words, his faith is not dependent on a locale. He trusts in the God who meets, not in the meeting place. God can meet us anywhere at any time if we put our faith in Jesus. Verse 8 tells us, Now Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died. And she was buried below Bethel under the terebinth tree. And so the name of it was called Alon Bakuth, or Tree of Weeping. Now remember, Jacob, you remember, he was a mama's boy. You remember that? He loved his mother. His mother loved him. Rebecca, in fact, was the one who coached him in his conspiracy to steal Esau's blessing. And I'm sure Rebecca's maid was a reminder of Jacob's past. It's interesting to me that it's not until the last connection to his mother dies, here Deborah, her maid, that God does a new work in Jacob's life. And isn't this what often happens to us? God has glorious plans for our future, but he waits to reveal it until something that we've been too attached to dies off. It's when Jacob buries Rebekah's maid that God does something special. He gives him a new name. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel. You remember God changes his name. You remember Jacob meant hill catcher. 
It, it was a name that uh, implied deception. To, to be named Jacob, to be named Hillcatcher, was sort of to be named a scoundrel, sneaky, conniving. And his name gets changed here from conniving to Israel or governed by God. And the change in his name reflected the change in his nature. For between his two trips to Bethel, Jacob had gone from being a self-sufficient man who relied on his own schemes to a man who knew God and who trusted in his promises. Verse 11 tells us, Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. And here God passes along the covenant to Jacob that he had made earlier to Abraham and to Abraham's son Isaac. Now he's reaffirming the Abrahamic covenant to Jacob or Israel. And verse 12, And the land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. You know, the Palestinians and the Arabs need to read that verse. The covenant that God made to Abraham also belongs to Israel and his sons. Then God went up from him in the place where he talked with him. And so Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone. And he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. Jacob gathers up a pile of rocks and, and they serve as a memorial a spiritual landmark. And you know, I believe these kinds of milestones are important in our relationship with God. They remind us of important events, key happenings in our relationship with God. You know, I've talked to a lot of believers, for example, who struggle with assurance of their salvation. And I think it's because they lack a point in time where they can go back and they can say, that's when I gave my life to Jesus Christ. They lack a landmark a milestone, a pillar. These landmarks are valuable. Baptism serves this purpose. They provide a purpose. They provide a place, really, for our faith to stand. Important dates, events, experiences. As I said, our baptism all serve this purpose. For years to come, this pile of stones at Bethel will mark Jacob's transformation. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him, Bethel. Verse 16. Then they journeyed from Bethel, and when there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, Rachel labored in childbirth, and she had hard labor. And now it came to pass, when she was in hard labor, that the midwife said to her, Do not fear, you will have this son also. And so it was, as her soul was departing, for she died, that she called his name Benoni, which means son of sorrow. But his father called him Benjamin, or son of my right hand, or the position of honor. And so Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set a pillar on her grave, which is the pillar of Rachel's grave to this day. In fact, on our last trip to Israel, we went to Bethlehem and we stopped off and paid a visit to Rachel's tomb, right on the road outside Bethlehem. You remember... When Leah began to have children, you remember Rachel went to Jacob and she was so upset. And you remember what she said to him? Give me children or I'll die. Oh boy, better be careful what you ask for. 
Because here she does have a child. And yet she dies. Be careful what you ask for. Be careful what you demand of God. You know, I've gotten to the point where I don't demand anything of God. I trust God to give me what I need. What He knows is best. It's interesting, too, that 2,000 years after Benjamin was born, another child was born in Bethlehem. And you remember Jesus began His life as a son of my sorrow, you might say. He was a suffering servant, culminating with the agony on the cross. But later, remember, His Father changed His name to Son of my right hand. And when Jesus rose from the dead and ascended into heaven, He sat down at the right hand of God in heaven, and there He sits today. Benjamin is a type, really, of Jesus. Then Israel journeyed and pitched his tent beyond the Tower of Eder. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard about it. You remember, Bilhah was Rachel's maid. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn, and their sin was incest. And it cost Reuben dearly. It was because of this sin, we'll see later, that Reuben forfeits the rights of the firstborn of this family. He could have been the father of the Messiah. It could have been his privilege to be the head of that ancestral line that would give birth to Jesus Christ. But instead, he forfeits that privilege. And I suppose all that happened to Reuben is they just named a sandwich after him. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve. The sons of Leah were Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun. The sons of Rachel were Joseph and Benjamin. The sons of Bilhah, Rachel's maidservant, were Dan and Naphtali. And the sons of Zilpah, Leah's maidservant, were Gad and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. Here's the family roll call. Jacob's boys will become the 12 tribes of Israel. You know, it's amazing how the future of the nation Israel parallels the life of the man with the same name. Notice the similarities. There's several. Both are forced into exile because of their sin. While away, both yearn to return home. Both develop into crafty businessmen. Jacob up in Haran... All his dealings with Laban. The Jews certainly have a reputation for shrewdness today. Both are preserved and prospered by the providence of God. Both become wanderers. And then finally, in God's time, both return to the land of promise. Interesting parallels there. Verse 27. Then Jacob came to his father Isaac at Mamre, or Kiroth Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had dwelt. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years. And so Isaac breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people, being old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. Evidently, they not only buried their dead, but they also buried the hatchet. For the family's sake, the two brothers who never got along finally did and they worked together to make funeral arrangements. Chapter 36. Now this is the genealogy of Esau, who is Edom. Now later in the Old Testament, we're going to read a lot about the Edomites. Remember, they were Esau's descendants. 
It says, Esau took his wives from the daughters of Canaan. Ada, the daughter of Elon the Hittite. Aholabama, the daughter of Anna, the daughter of Zebion, the Hivite. And Basimoth, Ishmael's daughter, sister of Nebaioth. Esau had three wives. And notice they were all three pagan princesses. Sadly, he married idolatrous women. Verse 4. Now Ada bore Eliphaz to Esau, and Basimoth bore Reuel, and Aholabama bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in the land of Canaan. Then Esau took his wives, his sons, his daughters, and all the persons of his household, his cattle and all his animals, and all his goods which he had gained in the land of Canaan, and went to a country away from the presence of his brother Jacob." The Edomites settled south of the Dead Sea, east of the Dead Sea as well. And in later years, the Edomites become neighbors of Israel. He says, For their possessions were too great for them to dwell together, and the land where they were strangers could not support them because of their livestock. And so Esau dwelt in Mount Seir. Esau is Edom. In later years, the capital of Edom becomes the rock city of Petra. You've seen the facade of Petra. It was used in the movie Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was the entrance to that cave where he went in and found the Holy Grail. That's the rock city of Petra. That was the capital of the Edomites. Other notes of interest. King Herod, at the time of Jesus, was an Edomite. The book of Obadiah, you might read it later, was a prophecy written to warn the nation of Edom of coming judgment. And in verse 12, notice the name Amalek appears. Perhaps the father of the Amalekites. We'll find them later when Moses brings the children of Israel out of Egypt. And notice one other point of interest. Notice verses 4, verse 10, and verse 12 mention the name Eliphaz. Also notice in verse 33 we find the name Jobab, or for short, Job. And it's because of these characters... Their appearance here in Genesis and also their appearance in the book of Job that many Bible scholars believe Job was one of the first books of the Bible actually written. That Job was actually written during the period of the patriarchs before Moses wrote Genesis. And so Job may have been the very first book actually written. As for the remainder of Esau's genealogy, I'll let you go home tonight. You and your wife cuddle up on the couch. Get some hot chocolate, and you can just read the genealogy of Esau for yourself. Chapter 37 begins with the fascinating story of Joseph. And more than 25% of the book of Genesis is preoccupied with Joseph. He's an important character. In fact, more biblical ink goes to describing the life of Joseph than almost anyone else, except for Jesus, of course, and maybe even King David. James Montgomery Boyce, he penned these words about Joseph. He was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted and abased. Yet at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust Him. Adversity did not harden his character. Prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public. He was a truly great man. And we're going to find over the next few chapters, we're going to learn a lot 
from the life of Joseph. Well, chapter 37 begins. Now Jacob dwelt in the land where his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. This is the history of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah, that was Dan and Naphtali, and the sons of Zilpah, that was Gad and Asher, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report to them, a, a bad report of them to his father. In other words, he snitched. Joseph was honest with his dad, and he told him what he needed to know, even though it incriminated his brothers. And you can bet this didn't make his brothers very fond of Joseph. They get infuriated with him further in verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. You know, Israel really bears the blame for how the brothers treated Joseph. He created this situation of intense sibling rivalry. Which brings up a point for parents. Parents, don't play favorites. I admire my parents. I mean, I was the perfect kid, really. <laughs> Smart, good-looking, always obedient. And my little brother, snotty-nosed brother, you know, he, he was always in trouble. But, you know, they never played favorites. Never did. Never showed any, well, whatever. Just kidding. They really didn't, though. They reminded me at Christmas time. You remember, we always bought, if we bought $57.97 worth of presents for you, we bought $57.97 worth of presents for your brother. They did. They worked real hard. Never to show any kind of prejudice. And if you've got multiple kids, understand you'll be tempted to. There will be one kid who you'll have more in common with than the others. Or perhaps your personalities match. Or maybe the circumstances around their birth make them special. Like Joseph, he could be the son of your old age. But let me warn you. Favor one child over the other. Slight one and show favoritism to the other. And you'll create all kinds of dissension and conflict in your home. Here is proof, the home of Israel. And if ever there was a dad who should have known better, it was Jacob. You remember, it was his dad Isaac who always favored his older brother Esau over him. I'm sure there were a million times he said, I'll never do this once I get to be a father. And look at it, he did. <laughs> you ever had that same thought? You find yourself acting just like your father? Boy, that's a scary thing. Now Israel is repeating the same mistake that he once resented, the same mistake that his father had made. And the next verse throws gas on the fire. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Now I thought tonight that I would teach chapter 37 wearing my high school letter jacket. And I want you to look at this. Almost 30 years later, and it just fits like a glove. Isn't that amazing? Look at that. 
And I can remember, man, when I was 18 years old, how I loved to walk around in this letter jacket. As a matter of fact, you don't really walk around in a letter jacket. You strut around in a letter jacket. Because a letter jacket, you know, it's got all these little icons on the letter there that, that point out your accomplishments and all the successes and all the talents and abilities that you have. And you walk around, you kind of strut around in your letter jacket. You, know, you could basically call it a coat of conceit. That, that's pretty much what it is. If Israel had bought all of his sons a coat of many colors, there wouldn't have been a problem. But he only bought one of these fancy letter jackets. And he gave it to Joseph. He was the only one who had a jacket. And boy, did it make his big brothers jealous. They were upset. Look at verse 4. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. A father's favoritism and a silly jacket contributed to tear this family apart. Actually, one translation of the phrase tunic of many colors reads a long sleeve coat, which was the landowner's attire. Common workers, they wore short sleeves. Joseph, though, had this coat. He wore long sleeves. And the impression that it left the brothers was that he was something special. He was more important than the rest of them. He was the white-collar son, while the others were the blue-collar sons. Every time Adam and Hoss saw little Joe strutting around the Ponderosa in his letter jacket, their hatred just grew. The bitterness was brewing. It was boiling. It was ready to explode. And Joseph, poor Joseph, he didn't do anything to help matters. You remember back in verse 2, he snitched. He tattled. And in verse 5, he tells his brother about a dream he had. We're told, now Joseph had a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him even more. Joseph never learned that one of the keys to a happy family life is leaving a few things unsaid. I hope all the husbands have learned that. No, Joseph. He had to spill the beans. Verse 6, so he said to them, please hear this dream which I have dreamed. There we were binding sheaves in the field. And then behold, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And indeed, your sheaves stood all around and bowed down to my sheaf. In other words, I had this dream and your Wheaties were bowing down to my Wheaties. And his brother said to him, Shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Now the dream was true. But the brothers didn't dare want to admit that they would one day have to submit to this bratty little brother. Daddy's little pet. You know, when you read how the brothers reacted, either Joseph was guilty of a little self-pride, a little spiritual pride, I guess you could say. Either there was a tinge of that in Joseph, or he was just totally oblivious to the obvious. It could have been the latter. It could have been that Joseph really didn't sin, but at best, he needed a lesson in some tact and diplomacy. For Joseph has a second dream, and it has the same impact. In fact, this time he even enrages his father. Verse 9, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, 
I have dreamed another dream, and this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. In other words, mom, dad, my 11 brothers, they all bowed down to me. The whole family will one day bow down to me. And so he told it to his father and his brothers. And his father, you remember the one who loved him, he rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed come to bow down to the earth before you? And his brothers envied him. But his father kept the matter in mind. And it's this jealousy that sets us up for the first movement in Joseph's story. For 14 chapters now, we're going to embark on a journey with Joseph. We're going to follow him from the pit to Potiphar's, to the prison, and finally to the palace. And Joseph's life is a showcase of another P word, and that's providence. For God is sovereign over all situations. And the life of Joseph proves that God is behind the scenes. God is moving and accomplishing his plans, even when we don't see his hand. Joseph's life illustrates the truth. Our disappointments are often God's opportunities. Well, verse 12 tells us, Then his brothers went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers feeding the flock in Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So he said to him, Here I am. Then he said to him, Please go and see if it is well with your brothers and well with the flocks and bring back word to me. So he sent him out of the valley of Hebron, and he went to Shechem. Which brings up two more P words in the story of Joseph. Picture and prophecy. For Joseph is a picture and a prophecy of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, God often speaks of New Testament realities through what we call types or analogies. It's been said, typology is a species of prophecy. You may have heard the old saying, what's concealed in the old is revealed in the new. And what's revealed in the new is concealed in the old. It's true. And Joseph here is an excellent example. Joseph is an amazing type of Jesus Christ. Hebron means communion or fellowship, which is exactly what Joseph was enjoying. Communion with his father Jacob until he's sent to Shechem. And throughout the Bible, Shechem is associated with sin and sorrow. And what a picture we have here of Jesus Christ. The gospel story begins with the Father and the Son in heaven, communing with each other in unbroken fellowship until the Son is sent into the world of sin and sorrow, sent to Shechem. And like Joseph, Jesus came into the world to check on his brothers, the Jewish people. And what did the Jews do but conspire to kill him? Exactly what happens to Joseph when he arrives in Shechem. The parallels throughout this story are uncanny. It's almost as if God planned all this out years in advance. Verse 15. Now a certain man found him, and there he was, wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you seeking? And so he said, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me where they are feeding their flocks. And the man said... They have departed from here, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went, and the word Dothan, by the way, means law. 
And where did Jesus find the Jewish people when he returned? He found them immersed and steeped in the law. And so Joseph went after his brothers and found them in Dothan. Now when they saw him afar off, even before he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. Joseph is about to step into a pile of trouble. Verse 19, then they said to one another, look, this dreamer is coming. Come therefore, let us now kill him and cast him into some pit. And we shall say some wild beast has devoured him. We shall see what will become of his dreams. But Reuben, who was eating his sandwich, (laughs) heard it and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, but cast him into this pit. Which is, the wilderness, which is in the wilderness, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might deliver him out of their hands and bring him back to his father. That was what he was thinking. That was Reuben's intention. He wanted to bring little Joe back to the Ponderosa. But that's not how the story plays out. Verse 23, so it came to pass, when Joseph had come to his brothers, that they stripped Joseph of his tunic. About the time I got this thing off. The tunic of many colors that had been given to him. And then they took him and cast him into a pit. And the pit was empty. There was no water in it. And they sat down to eat a meal. Notice how cavalier they are about it. I mean, they just assault their brother, throw him into a pit. And they, oh man, I worked up an appetite. Let's, Let's get a sandwich. How about a Reuben sandwich? Then they lifted their eyes and looked, and there was a company of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels, bearing spices, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry them down to Egypt. It was a caravan. It was on the trade route, and so here comes a caravan headed to Egypt. And so Judah said to his brothers, What profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Notice Judah is the one who brings up money. Hey, if we're going to do this to our brother, why don't, we, why don't we make a few bucks off of it? Let, let's make a little money. It reminds us of another Judah. The name was a derivative, the name Judas, who betrayed someone else for money. Apparently Reuben was away, so Judah had taken charge. He says, come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh. And his brothers listened. Then Midian, the Midianite traders passed by. So the brothers pulled Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver, a few coins, which is close to what they sold Jesus for. Jesus was sold to the priest for 30 shekels of silver, again by a man named Judas. And they took Joseph to Egypt. In verse 29, Reuben shows back up. He was actually away at the time. And then Reuben returned to the pit, and indeed Joseph was not in the pit, and he tore his clothes. And he returned to his brothers and said, The lad is no more, and I, where shall I go? How could they ever return again to their father Jacob with news that they had ditched his favorite son? They had sold him into slavery. Where are they going to go now? They can't go back to dad. And that's when they concoct a plan. So they took Joseph's tunic, killed a kid of the goats, and dipped the tunic in the blood. They should have been thankful that this was before the days of DNA testing. 
And then they sent a tunic of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, We have found this. Do you know whether it is your son's tunic or not? Oh, yeah. And he recognized it and said, It is my son's tunic. A wild beast has devoured him. Without doubt, Joseph is torn to pieces. And then Jacob tore his clothes, put sackcloth on his waist, and mourned for his son many days. Now, notice the irony here. Here is an example of, I guess, what we could call poetic justice. Jacob gets tricked by his sons the same way that he tricked his father Isaac. Remember, Jacob killed a goat and he put the fur, the wool, on his arms. Why? To mimic his hairy brother Esau. Now his sons kill a goat. And they dip Joseph's coat in the blood. Jacob deceived and now is deceived by a goat. You could say Jacob's sons got his goat the same way he had treated his own father. The chickens come home to roost. A man's sin always comes back to bite him. Verse 35. And all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I shall go down into the grave to my son in mourning. And thus his father wept for him. And for the next 20 years, the old man Jacob grieves over the loss of his favorite son Joseph, thinking he's dead, not really knowing what's happened to him. Verse 36 shifts location to the slave markets down in Egypt. Now the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh and captain of the guard. And here is the second movement in the story of Joseph. He goes from the pit to the house of Potiphar. But in between, there is this bizarre story that gets inserted in chapter 38. Chapter 38 recounts a sordid story that highlights Jacob's son Judah, the one who wanted to do in to Joseph. It highlights Judah and his disregard for a custom that is no longer applicable to you and us, the law of the liverite. Now let me explain this custom first and then we'll read the chapter. The Hebrew word levir was a term for brother-in-law. And in ancient times in Israel, when a man died without an heir, it was the responsibility of the man's brother to marry the widow and to raise up an heir that would take over his brother's household. It was a family duty. The law of the Liverites were later encoded in the law of Moses. You find it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. Well, with that background, let's plunge in. It came to pass at that time that Judah departed from his brothers and visited a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. And Judah saw, and when he saw her, he said, Hey, Hira. <laughs> Obviously, you don't know your Georgia towns. And Judah saw there a daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua, and he married her. And went into her. Now here is the beginning of, Jake, of, jo, of Judah's troubles. He marries a pagan. He marries an unbeliever. He marries a Canaanite. 
And when will we learn this is always a mistake? Don't marry an unbeliever. And, and let me say something to you single folks, you, especially you teenagers here. Did you know you'll never marry an unbeliever if you never date an unbeliever? Did you know that? Might want to write that down. Hey, marry an unbeliever and you'll wake up with the devil as a father-in-law. That's not good. Judah sinned. He set himself up for a host of problems by marrying a Canaanite. Don't repeat that mistake. Verse 3 tells us, So she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Er. Hey, Judah erred when he married this unbeliever. That's what he got for it, an error. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. And she conceived yet again and bore a son and called his name Shelah. He was at Chizib when she bore him. Then Judah took a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord killed him. And we don't know how Er erred, but apparently it was a serious error. Verse 8, And Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and marry her, and raise up an heir to your brother. But Onan knew that the heir would not be his. And it came to pass when he went into his brother's wife that he emitted on the ground, lest he should give an heir to his brother. This was a cruel and selfish deed. Onan uses Tamar sexually and then dumps his seed on the ground to keep from siring a son that he knows will never be his son, but will only be his nephew. Selfish act. Well, verse 10 says, And the thing which he did displeased the Lord. Therefore he killed him also. One reason this story appears in the Bible is because of its importance to the lineage of Judah. As we'll see, Judah's Thirdborn becomes the heir to the family birthright. In fact, Messiah was born through the lineage of Judah. And so failing to cooperate with Judah's ancestral responsibilities was a serious crime. Well, verse 11 says, Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till my son Shelah is grown. Apparently he was just a child at the time. For he said, lest he also die as his brothers did. And notice Judah's implying there that Tamar may have been one of the reasons that his other two sons had kicked the bucket. It was sort of an insult. And it made her pretty mad. Judah should have never married the king. Judah was the one who made the mistake. And I'm sure years later the rabbis used this story to hammer home the point to future Hebrews that they should only marry believers. Well, Tamar, she went. And she dwelt in her father's house, waiting on Sheila to become maritable age. Verse 12. Now in the process of time, the daughter of Shua, Judah's wife, died. And Judah was comforted and went up to his sheep shears at Timnah. He and his friend Hira, the Adulamite. And when they saw Hira, you know what they said? Hey, Hira. Yeah. Notice again, though, he's hanging out with the wrong person. Hira is another idol worshiper. He's another Canaanite. 
Boy, I, I, hope, I hope every teenager here catches this tonight. Bad company will never produce good morals. Never will. Hang out with the wrong people and you're going to be in trouble. He got into trouble marrying a Canaanite. Now he's about to get into trouble hanging out with old Hayara. And it was told Tamar, saying, Look, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. So she took off her widow's garments, covered herself with a veil, and wrapped herself, and sat in an open place which was on the way to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown, and she was not given to him as a wife. Now, now tomorrow, she's feeling double-crossed. You know, Judah had promised that when this youngest son got old enough, that the two of them would be married, that she would receive her heir, that she would have a son to rule over her household. And she feels that the time has come where Judah needs to come through with his promise. She wants an heir. She, she was tired of the other heir, er, er heir that she had, and now she wants another heir. And she concocts a scheme to get what she wants. Verse 15, when Judah saw her, he thought she was a harlot. That was her plan. Because she had covered her face. Then he turned to her by the way and said, Please let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. This shows the moral condition of Judah. I mean, his wife dies and before her body gets cold... He's down seeking a prostitute for a few cheap thrills. Judah was not a very spiritual, godly man. And so she said from behind her veil, What will you give me that you may come into me? In other words, she wants some collateral payment in advance. How about a visa card number, big boy? And he said, I will send you a young goat from the flock. So she said, Will you give me a pledge till you send it? Again, she still wants something up front. She knows firsthand that Judah doesn't always keep his promises. And then he said, what pledge shall I give you? So she said, your signet and cord and your staff that is in your hand. Now, these were important items. It would be like giving your credit card number out. A signet ring was the equivalent of a signature. It was the means by which you signed contracts and did business. And it's important that we take note of this. Look what happened, guys. When a man is controlled by his lust, it causes him to make some foolish mistakes. It causes him to make some bad choices. He should have never given to her his signet and his cord and his staff. But he gave them to her, and he went into her, and she conceived by him. And so she arose and went away and laid aside her veil and put on the garments of her widowhood. Verse 20. And Judah sent the young goat by the hand of his friend to the Adulamite to receive his pledge from the woman's hand. But he did not find her. He wanted to retrieve these items, but the woman had disappeared. Verse 21. Then he asked the men of that place, saying, Where is the harlot? who was openly by the roadside. And they said, there was no harlot in this place. And he returned to Judah and said, I cannot find her. Also the men of the place said that there was no harlot in this place. Then Judah said, well, let her take them for herself, lest we be shamed. For I sent this young goat, and you have not found her. And he assumed that just like that, 
he could dismiss responsibility for the whole affair. Guys, trust me, when you fall into sexual sin, it is never that easy. And it came to pass about three months after that Judah was told, saying, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has played the harlot. Furthermore, she is with child by harlotry. So Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. He was outraged. He was livid. No daughter-in-law of mine is going to play the harlot. This wicked girl has shamed the family name. When she was brought out, she sent to her father-in-law saying, By the man to whom these belong, I am with child. And guess what? She handed over. And she said, Please determine who these are. The signet and cord and staff. And it would have really been something to have seen the look on Judah's face when he saw his own signet and cord and staff. And so Judah acknowledged them and said, She has been more righteous than I, because I did not give her to Shelah, my son. And he never knew her again. But as the old adage declares, your sins will find you out. It may take a few months. It may take a few years. But they'll get you. Verse 27. Now it came to pass at the time for giving birth that behold, twins were in her womb. And so it was when she was giving birth that the one put out his hand and the midwife took a scarlet thread and bound it on his hand saying, this one came out first. Then it happened as he drew back his hand that his brother came out unexpectedly. And she said, how did you break through? This breach be upon you. And therefore his name was called Perez, which means breakthrough. Afterward, his brother came out who had the scarlet thread on his hand and his name was called Zira, which means a rising light. Fast forward 1,800 years to the birth of Jesus Christ. Study his genealogy. And in Matthew chapter 1, you will find an amazing entry in that genealogy. Verse 3 of Matthew chapter 1 records, Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. The prostitution of Judah, the vindictiveness of Tamar, the illegitimate twins, Perez and Zerah. Notice the whole sordid story ends up becoming a branch in the family tree of the Savior Himself. If that is not a testimony to God's mercy and grace, I don't know what could be. It's proof that God can even take our sins and our blunders and our indiscretions and He can even use them for good. What a merciful, what a gracious, what a loving God we serve. And there we have Genesis chapter 38. Next week, we'll pick up the pace in the life of Joseph. And for the next three weeks... We'll be studying the life of Joseph and finishing up the book of Genesis. Let's pray. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. 
We thank you, Lord, for speaking to our hearts on many matters, on several issues. Lord, help us to not just be hearers of the word, help us to be doers of the word as well. Encourage us, Lord. Help us to continue to meditate on these things in the days ahead. And help us, Lord, to take to heart this morning's message as well. Help us, Lord, to make our marriage a high-priority item and to take this next year and do what we can to build a strong marriage. We love you, Lord. We thank you for tonight. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.